Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and in today's show we're going to be talking all about banking as a service. It's a term that gets thrown around but it's changing literally everything about finance. Whether it's Google partnering with eight different banks, Apple and Goldman, a myriad of new fintechs emerging, bank as a service is a true game changer. It's enabling true embedded finance, which we estimate as a market could be worth 3.6 trillion US dollars by 2030. Today, we're going to dig into the what, the who, and the why of banking as a service. So sit back, relax, make sure you subscribe as we get into bank as a service and embedded finance. To help dive into the topic, I'm joined by some of the very best in the industry from both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, first up, uh, we have Joanne Dewar, who's CEO at GPS. Joanne, how are you doing? Very good. Nice to be here, Simon. Thanks for inviting me. No, no, no worries at all. Uh, do you want to just give us uh, the, the couple of minute version for anybody who hasn't heard of GPS? Just remind everybody who it is. Well, given that you've put so in your report, I'm now describing GPS as the OG payments processor of fintech. I thought that's a fantastic ex- uh, description. Um, but yes, we we sit as the, the tech behind the tech for many of the um, fintechs, challenger banks and e-wallet providers, uh, principally across uh, Europe, but uh, extending out to Asia-Pac and, and MENA as well. Fantastic. And also joining us all the way from Salt Lake City uh, at 8 a.m. in the morning. We really appreciate this. We have Michael Douglas, who's VP of Strategy at Galileo. Michael, how are you doing? Doing quite well. Yourself? Not too bad. Um, I'm hoping the caffeine has nicely just started to kick in for you and you can give us a quick pitch on who Galileo is. Absolutely. Yeah. No, doing doing well over here. And, and uh, the way I described Galileo is that uh, similar to how Joanne described uh, GPS, uh, we, we say we're the, the tech behind fintech. Um, we're an API-enabled banking as a service platform, uh, powering many of uh, kind of the big and exciting logos here in, in uh, the U.S., ranging from Chime, Varo, Aspiration, uh, and, and even a number of uh, logos who've, who've started across the pond and made their way over here, such as Monzo, Revolut, and others. Exciting stuff. Um, logos that you may have heard of if you're a fintech fan, absolutely. Um, and of course, uh, we did just publish a report all into Bank as a Service, and uh, there are some implications that we're going to discuss today. Um, but we are joined, of course, by the one and only Kate Moody from uh, 11FS. Do you want to just give us uh, a little bit of the background into all things Bank as a Service? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think we've had a couple of questions about, you know, why we've written this report, why now? Um, and as a general rule, you know, at 11FS, we publish reports that echo the conversations we're having with people across the industry and with our clients, the things that they need to understand to get better products and services out into the market and banking as a service, which I'm sure we're going to dig into in a lot more detail as we go through. Um, in one form or another, that's creeping into pretty much every conversation that we're having right now. Uh, but it's you know, a really multifaceted concept. There are multiple nuances to it. We've moved sort of well and truly beyond white labeling, traditional old style, slap your logo on someone else's card. It's a much more sophisticated beast than that. So really what we wanted to do with the report was to give people a go-to reference point for understanding what banking as a service is in a hopefully bullshit-free way. Uh, we pride ourselves on that at 11FS and where we think it could go uh, and to give a shout out to some of the organisations that are dramatically changing what it's possible to do in financial services. And we're obviously really chuffed to be joined by by the guys today to, to give us their perspectives. Yeah. Folks on the front line as well. I, I love this piece by um, Andreessen Horowitz. I don't know if, if you saw this, Michael or Joanne, that um, partner banks who sort of work behind the scenes with folks like yourselves at Galileo um, are outperforming the market by up to 2x in the US, Michael. Um, and I I'm interested in your perspective. I mean, Galileo has been around since sort of 2005. Um, how has the market changed from what was a very payments processing conversation? And where do APIs come into this? Because you know, people understood payments processing. People understood white label. Would you say how would you say what you do is different? Yeah. So it, it, it's been interesting reading through this report and, and looking at some of the. Uh, partnerships you cataloged through the early 2010s, uh, such as were promulgated by uh, the likes of Capital One, Bank of America, and others. I was actually at Capital One in the early 2010s, and that was a really interesting uh, kind of business model and one that unlocked a lot of value for their partners, as well as obviously for Capital One. Uh, the thing that we're seeing today is uh, much more kind of sophisticated end users, such as uh, Uber, Apple, Amazon, who really want a flexible platform to be able to build off of and so instead of having something out of the box, such as you would get through a white label solution as, as Capital One would have with many of its partners, what you need is something that's much more 
um, pick and choose and, and kind of create your own adventure. And so the, the, the change that's really happened in the, in the industry, in my, in my view, is, is two things. The first is a modularization of each of the parts on the supply side. So separating out um, your license provider on, on the banking side, um, your uh, service providers such as Galileo would have, and then your uh, brand who would own the marketing and distribution. And Galileo helps connect all those pieces together through a flexible API-based platform. Uh, that allows kind of those brands to tap into deep capabilities pretty easily. I think that uh, choose your own adventure is is probably my favorite metaphor uh, of the of the entire thing. And I wish I'd have had that before we wrote the report now. But uh, Joanne, as well, it's not just big companies like Uber, Lyft, and Apple, right? The the GPS has been part of the story of these really small companies. Um, can you give me some examples of some smaller companies, and and why would they why would they go this route? Why, why wouldn't they just go and partner with a bank and stick their logo on that? Well, I, there's, there's several parts to the answer to that. I mean, first up, in terms of us supporting uh, small companies and and starting with a startup and seeing where you can go, you know, Revolut started with us when it was just Nikolai and Vlad, uh, you know, two guys with with um, an, an idea, and you know, taking that to the the global expanse that now is has been, you know, one of the real success stories. Um, I, I think in in Europe. Um, it's been a slightly different uh, journey uh, to to what's happened in the US, and certainly the role that GPS played at the outset was actually uh, disaggregating how what was program management uh, operated uh, and uh, and actually disintermediated program managers so that fintechs could take a program straight to market with directly with a processor. So that's the role that where that's the first gap that that GPS uh, fulfilled uh, in the ecosystem back in uh, 2012-2013. And effectively, what we're seeing uh, and how uh, banking and service is now described is almost that program management 2.0 in terms of it's it's re bringing back together the uh, you know various modular components uh, pulling together the, the the best of breed uh, across the, the the different offerings to be able to bring that um, full service back together and, and simplify things again but you know back where we started with the likes of Revolut Monzo Starling curve um, you know they were actually you know tech savvy tech hungry um, you know individuals and companies who were prepared to work actually at that disaggregated level and bring the best of breed together themselves. It, it so, used to be the case that you wanted it all you wanted the all in one stop shop, but actually having the pieces to create your own adventure, as Michael so wonderfully put it, is a preference for a smaller organization because they, they've got more control over the experience perhaps. So in Monzo they choose chose to go uh prepaid first uh with uh with Wirecard. Uh, and and GPS and that was their rapid route to market and that's how they stole the march on that original Challenger Bank race. Uh, in parallel, Starling had decided to actually uh, build uh, everything uh, from scratch themselves from a banking service uh, perspective. So they actually didn't rely on any software as a service or banking as a service, but uh, we were still in there as the the car payments uh, provider and you know we are still today. There's so much nuance to pick through there, I think, Kate. But I, I imagine if uh, you imagine sort of from an entrepreneur's perspective that they're much more focused on solving customer problem than they are necessarily sort of uh, the deep complexities. Do you think these types of providers make a difference um, to to an entrepreneur who's trying to who's trying to build, and and how do they? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. We've seen that um, you know, in the example precisely um, that you know, jo- Joanne gave. You know, Monzo kind of focused on focusing on, on zooming in on that customer problem and using uh, practical experts in different categories beneath them to to get that to market quickly Uh, and that's what we're seeing you know you don't have to be an expert in the entire financial services stack now to start building something and testing it with customers to really check that you're going to make a difference actually you can reach out to lots of different partners who can bring their expertise to the table Um, you can configure that uh, in a way that enables you to scale that over time to kind of switch partners in and out as you as you go through growth and, and have different requirements to serve your customers and I think this is kind of one of the fundamental areas of, of banking as a service that is the most exciting, that it kind of gives both 
uh, more speed to market for, for people that want to launch new customer propositions. And, and also, you know, enables, and we've covered in the report lots of the other different practical advantages, but, you know, enables you to, to try things out, you know, with lower upfront cost investment, uh, enables you to have flexibility over time in terms of your providers in a way that's fundamentally different to what we saw, you know, even a relatively short period of time ago. So it's, it's a rapidly changing scene and it has huge consequences for what we can actually get into market and into customers' hands. Sorry, go ahead, John, please. Sorry, the, the whole industry is evolving so rapidly that we're all making it easier and easier to bring new new products uh, to market. So, you know, whether it's, you know, us as the, the, the processors ourselves or, as you say, these banking as a service providers who are, um, you know, pulling together those various components on the, the customer's behalf such that they've just got a, a single contract to sign. Um, you know, we're all working in different ways to make those new product launches easier and easier. Absolutely. Speed to market is, is so, so crucial and also bringing down the cost uh, and getting things in the hands of customers. Nothing, once it gets in the hands of customers, that's when things really, really change. And it used to be a battle just to get it there. Now the battle is staying there. And, and I guess, Michael, um, you guys have Galileo Instant, which which is super, super fast to, to market. Do you want to tell um, the listeners a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so I'll, I'll differentiate this a little bit from <clears throat> kind of our enterprise or Galileo Pro offering, uh, which is really uh, kind of a, a super, super flexible, uh, you come to us, we help you find an issuing bank to partner with you, we help you pick out a, a an emboss vendor and a KYC vendor and and get you set up on, on, you know, help you evaluate your different options as it relates to which network scheme you want to get up on. Uh, in contrast to that kind of very, at sort of having to pick each of the each of these choices across so many different dimensions, Galileo Instant says, "Look, we've got a lot of this kind of already already pulled together, and here's here's an offering that you can use. Galileo will act as the program manager, and instead of worrying about your emboss vendor, your KYC vendor, your your issuer, etc., we're just gonna we're gonna have you run on Bancor. We're gonna have you run with this uh, emboss vendor, etc." And uh, all you need to worry about is which of the pieces of our API platform do you want to use as you try and do your go-to-market. And when you do that, it reduces some of the flexibility, but it also reduces a lot of the fixed costs and most importantly, the speed to market. And I think, Joanne, that's always it, isn't it? That the, the entrepreneur or the person or even the very large brand has these questions to play with as they're looking at how they go to market. Yeah, that's what we've seen is, uh, you know, whether you are a big or small company it's all about uh being able to try before you buy or you know have that low uh low cost uh low risk decision point just to uh have a go at something see what the the shareholders the investors the customers say about it um and i uh, so what what we had done um similar to what uh, Galileo have with uh, Galileo Instant, we have um, actually a consortium approach. It's something slightly different. It's a consortium approach called Beyond, which actually brings um, you know, the, the, the best of breed of uh, several parties together in order to be able to um, have that single contract to to bring a pr- proof of concept to life and um, you know, to be able to, to road test. It gets you again to the same place of speed to market uh, and that sort of uh, really road testing it with customers as quickly as possible. I think that's really, really crucial. And and you mentioned, you both mentioned sort of the big brands there. Kate, I'm interested in why a non-financial brand, why does Apple, why does Google, why does Uber, why are they all trying to get into finance? Why is every company a fintech company? Oh, I mean, that's a big question. Um, I mean, there's lots of different angles to this, right? It kind of depends on on the individual brand and kind of what their individual strengths are. But there's you know, a huge, a huge variety of different benefits from just you know diversifying your revenue stream, like opening up new ways for you to kind of get money out of your customers' wallets and into your into your uh, nice juicy Apple bank account. Um, there's also you know lots of benefits that people are kind of chasing after in terms of greater customer loyalty, greater customer stickiness. Like actually, if you can keep them in your space longer and get them doing more through you, you know, that just embeds them into your into your platform. You know, we're seeing Shopify do huge numbers of really interesting things in that space that you know, seem to be driving at that particular benefit. And also, you know, you see the benefit of brands just making it fundamentally easier for customers to consume their existing products like actually you know you're removing barriers to to entry so you look at asos you know in in the uk for example you know asos and klarna like actually they're 
creating partnerships that actually make it easier for customers to buy their products in the first place. So there are a myriad of different benefits, um, which is part of the reason why it's such an exciting space. When you speak about ASOS and Klarna, I saw a good stat from a firm um, who many of you know, Max, Le- Max Levchin, former founder of PayPal's um, sort of um, buy now, pay later startup, um, that around 50% of people will choose the 0% financing at checkout from a firm instead of using their rewards card um, because it's so super convenient there at the point of purchase. Michael, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I wanted to, to jump in earlier on on the point around uh, why companies are using embedded finance uh, would definitely uh, second the, the statements around customer loyalty and on the the economics and the economic upside that companies want to take part in. Um, it's been interesting if you watch anyone who participates in an airline loyalty program, uh, how much they they will uh, oper- you know alter their behavior in order to take uh, flights on their preferred airline, often going very kind of convoluted routes just to make sure they get to the next loyalty tier. Um, and, and, and make sure all their points are on one platform. And it's been interesting. I actually, um, in a previous life as a strategy consultant, uh, worked with, with kind of large domestic airlines in the U.S. And one of the things you'll notice is that um, from their earnings statements, uh, their credit card partnerships drive a disproportionate share of their income. And you almost take away the conclusion of these are, you know, the airline is almost just an excuse to distribute credit cards. I mean, that's that's where the money really is for these guys. So it's it really is that that economic upside and that loyalty are two massive pieces of, as part of embedded finance. Um, so I, I think there's there's a lot of kind of interesting opportunities to to and, and kind of new avenues for this to take as in later iterations. That was just kind of a simple white label solution, uh, but with kind of new, more sophisticated partners. I think. I think there's there's a lot of kind of interesting um, upside and opportunity to unlock here. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I saw a really good piece from uh, our friend Ron Shevlin in Forbes uh, that was suggesting that embedded finance and bankers as a service is driving around $24 billion in revenue today, um, but expects around $230 billion in revenue by 2025 um, and generating a market cap value of, uh, of $1 trillion US. I mean, these are really big numbers, um, but it's it's all about being sort of API first and allowing that embedding. Do, Michael, you mentioned there briefly sort of that, that simple white label products. Is there a way you think about the difference between white labeling and, and embedding finance? How, how do you pull those things apart as you think about it from a, from a strategy perspective? Yeah, so I think there's actually a really great framework that's included in the report that 11FS has put together where they segment the market on two separate dimensions, the first of which being the digital sophistication of the partner, and the second being whether finance is kind of central to their offering or an ancillary piece that they're using to expand either uh, their customer offering or or to enhance their economics. And so I think of of white labeling uh, as being a piece of embedded finance that is much more geared towards a non-finance first partner and someone who is not as digitally sophisticated. Uh, so, so airlines is, is a kind of classic, kind of perfect example for something like this. Um, but if you look, if you kind of move across that dimension and are along either one of those axes uh, to either a finance first or to a more digitally native, uh, you start needing um, a much more flexible platform such as, such as a Galileo or GPS could offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Chime would never be interested in, in taking a white label Galileo product and just going out and distributing that in the market. What they're going to want is, is kind of a, a whole flexible set of features that they can build off of and offer to their customer base. One of the things that they've um, used Galileo for very successfully is they took um, a, a feature which we have, which is early access to your direct deposits, and they've taken that to the market. They've, they've, um, that is something that is very well geared to the specific demographic that they are targeting. And, and they, of course, have had very viral growth, right? And so, but that's completely different than what, uh, you know, the core value proposition is of, of our other uh, customers. And so the nice thing is, is that our other customers who don't need that feature can just go pick the other pieces from our platform that really speak to their end users. Which is quite different to going through the RFP process and the customization to figure out yeah, how do we change the underlying platform. Kate, you had a point? Yeah, I suppose I was interested to understand, you know, Michael, how do you sort those customers out? So when people come to you, how do you put them in the boxes of the grid? Like what are the questions that you're asking to, you know, determine that level of, of I suppose, technical sophistication and financial ambition? What, how do you work that out? Yeah. And I, I think the primary kind of continuum I th- think about it is how, how interested are you in flexibility versus out of the box functionality? And if it's more out of the box functionality, there are 
kind of those white label solutions that are available, um, such as has been offered by our parent company, SoFi, via Samsung Money, right? It's effectively taking SoFi's SoFi Money product and white labeling it out to, to Samsung. Um, but for, for individuals who really want lots of flexibility, uh, there's going to be, you know, kind of some implicit technical sophistication that they're going to need to have in order to, to make use of that on our platform. And, and typically one of our Neobank or Challenger Bank partners is going to want to do all sorts of kind of interesting, innovative things. And they're going to be using our API solutions versus a just kind of um, a, a pure kind of white label play. Uh, Joanne, I, I want to um, open this up to a global perspective as well, because it's not just about the, the US and UK, of course. You guys operate in, in a number of different markets around the world. What are your observations as, as you sit back and look at that? And how are the different markets uh, changing? So one of the things that's really interesting to think about as you look globally is um, these international brands that we're talking about, then wanting to get into financial services, doing financial services globally is immensely difficult because everything is down to a market by market basis. And we, I mean, obviously in, in the US, you've got the, the the huge market before you go outside uh, the uh, the national borders. Um, with with Europe, with SEPA, we've been absolutely um, uh, uh, blessed with the the opportunities we've had. The FCA uh, supporting the uh, you know the regulatory openness for for new products, and so that's what really drove so many fintechs launching in the UK, launching pan SEPA uh, products, which is thirty six countries, um, and. And then we, we've been supporting customers who then want to take those products outside of Europe. And then suddenly it's much, much more complicated because for every single market, you're needing to find, um, you know, a, a licensed uh, bank to be able to work with. And, you know, again, within Europe, we've been uh, used to the, the BIN sponsorship model so that uh, uh, regulated um uh, banks will will lend out their uh, their license to be able to uh, effectively uh, underwrite uh, fintech propositions. That hardly exists outside of uh, Europe. So um, as, aside from the likes of you know, there's Bancor and a few others in the US, uh, but you know, outside of that, it's uh, it's quite rare. So in part, we're needing to uh, work with banks to. Um, to build out a network of new bin sponsors to encourage that, uh, you know, consideration. I think you, again, you mentioned it in your report, the idea of banks recognizing that there's a, a new, uh, you know, profit center opportunity for them to act as, as bin sponsors. And actually it's organizations like ourselves can, that can then stitch all of those things together to create a global offering. But, um, you know, for organizations like, you know, Revolut or, you know, any of the, the names that you say, actually taking a product global is very, very complicated. And at different levels of that life cycle, if you are a global brand, brand that's thinking globally, you need sort of uh, these capabilities and these providers that can, can help you out and develop some level of consistency. I think you, know, you just got to look at the outcry for people to, for Apple Card to come to, to any other country than the US at the moment. If they, if they had that network of partners and also the capabilities internally to be able to manage that network of partners, they'd be, be in an interesting place. Um, I'm enjoying this conversation too much and we're nearly at ad break already. But just before we go, um, Michael, I wondered if you could div- give us like the all, um, your one minute version of the Durban Amendment, because this is like my favorite nerd regulatory point. Um, do you want to just talk us through what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Durban Amendment um, is, is an amendment which regulates and puts a cap on the total amount of interchange fees that you're allowed to um, charge on a typical debit card transaction. Now, there is a special carve out within that um, regulation that says that uh, banks with under $10 billion in total assets are allowed to charge higher higher fees on their, on their debit um, transactions. And that's created a real opportunity for smaller community banks to uh, license out kind of their platform out uh, in, in conjunction with Galileo out to in brands like uh, like Chime and and and, um, and Aspiration and others uh, as they go to market and it, it allows them to to actually achieve the economics that make their um, you know the demand deposit accounts actually viable uh, from a you know kind of unit economic perspective which is which is not sorry I mean, a lot of people put down the explosion of growth of, of the sort of neobanking space in the US to the Durban Amendment. It's going to be one of those uh, post-global financial crisis, uh, you know, 
we looked at how in the UK we see these challenger banks come up because of change in regulation. And yet similarly, we see it in the US. It just happened a little bit later than everybody saw it, but it was a, it was a different regulation, but ends up in a, in a similar place. So super interesting to see how now we've got virtual banks in Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia and many other markets. Uh, and Australia is now getting this as well. Um, get, what a time to be an embedded banking and, fun, and bank as a service. But we've, we've got to take a quick break. So we'll be back very, very shortly. So as you might have heard by now, well, we went dead and wrote a report, didn't we? And banking as a service is, of course, deconstructing the very banking stack. It's enabling brands to embed finance more easily and tailor financial products to specific customer needs. This is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks extra revenue streams as well as the brands. You can download our comprehensive no BS view of banking as a service and what it means for our industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. It's all lowercase bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. Fintech Insider listeners, we need you. Uh, if you listen to the show, whether it's your first episode, your 449th, if you dip in, dip out, we'd love it if you could just give us a couple of minutes uh, to Give us some suggestions. Help us shape the show. We want to know what you like, what you don't, what we can improve, because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, and we want to make it better. So help us out. Please take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. That's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. It would mean the world to me, and I think it would mean the world to you, Kate, wouldn't it? I love a good survey. Absolutely. <laughs> Researchers love surveys. Uh, already, let's get on with the show. Alrighty, now we're going to get into some of the business model side of banking as a service. Um, I think we've we've mentioned a couple of times uh, that uh, you know U.S. banks have uh, partner banks, small banks have done quite well in this space. But Joanne, just before the break, you were sort of talking about uh, opportunities for for banks in other parts of the world to to see an opportunity. Is it worth um, kind of expanding on that thought just a little bit to talk about um, what how banks could be helping out this fintech space and thinking differently about their their balance sheet and and, and how they work with with fintechs? Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the things to that I wanted to reflect on first was I think your report very helpfully differentiates um, for, for me for the first time between banking as a service and banking software as a service. And um, it's an area where um, I think there is a lot of muddle. And, uh, you know, to the extent that even I've, uh, I've joined uh, sort of panel sessions before that are on banking as a service, and and you know it's it's questioned as to what my role is within that and and yet it's you know absolutely you know in the heart of it um and so to i guess to to recap how you how you play it uh so the the banking software as a service uh is around actually providing those uh core modules that are configured by the the uh bank themselves um or or the you know either within the traditional bank or or set up as a, in a greenfield environment, whereas this banking as a service is actually pulling all of the the, the multi uh, parts together to be able to provide that almost uh, one contract or one stop shop uh, capability, which actually in turn uh, can be. Uh, pulling together many, many uh, parties. And what we often find, I mean, where you've got um, other names uh, in your report, like uh, Rails Bank or like uh, Modular or Trezor, you know, behind many of the banking as a service, we're actually the, like the the Intel chip inside. So it's like, oh, yeah, hello, it's us again. <laughs> Yeah, and this is the thing people don't realize that the sort of the layer cake of sort of different players so often. And I think it was so important to separate the software that a, a bank uses, but that has to have a license versus what you do if you don't have a banking license or a payments license, which is you can go work with somebody like a Galileo and you can offer something that looks and feels like a bank account, but actually you don't necessarily have a license yet. And the, the complexity of that versus... I couldn't use, um, let's take a, um, a Mambu or a Thought Machine or even an 11FS Foundry. If I wanted to use that and I don't have some sort of license at this point, um, then it would be kind of difficult. But if I do have a license, it's transformational for me. It can really make a difference. And I think, Kate, there are all of these tricky words that that, that, uh, that trip us up. And I think that's so important to, to pull apart. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on, on the conversation so far? Yeah, no, I think uh, you know, definitely I'm just coming up to my 
two-year anniversary at 11FS and, you know, full confession, you know, when I joined banking as a service was, was quite a foreign concept to me. So, you know, I've been going on the, the journey over the last two years that I've become more familiar with it. And it's actually been fascinating to to see how that kind of journey of understanding where well, that makes it sound a little bit like a reality TV show, but, uh, you know, how, how the clients that we work with, how they're going through that as well. Um, you know, the, the types of conversations that we're having are, are changing. Um, the kind of, I, I suppose you were talking about the, potential empowerment of some of these new banking software providers it, it really is transformational for for lots of these organizations it opens up a sort of sense of optimism that um feels like it hasn't been there for a while like actually to be able to start to think about the the technical capabilities to sit beneath your brand in a in a new way in a way where you're thinking about possibilities and the options to change and adapt is is really really powerful for lots of these organizations that have struggled to do that in the past so I guess to, to come back to your uh, question, Simon, as to the role that uh, banks can play, it's it's all about partnership, all of this. You know, the, the banking as a service uh, provider will need to work uh, in partnership with different banks in each jurisdiction in order to be able to help the the either the fintech or the, the the brand bring a product uh, to market and you know it's in as i mentioned earlier it's incredibly uh, complicated having to find all these different partners in in every jurisdiction and that's where actually at least finding some thread of commonality um you know helps a a brand go uh, you know with their financial services product internationally what's very clear and this comes back to your point on, um, you know, platforms and the difference in valuation is platform technology businesses do not want to be regulated uh, financial services providers in every every geography. And there's 195 countries to try and cover somehow. Um, so, you know, it, try get like a banking license in 195 countries that, that these that these big techs operating. And, and yet, actually, when you think about network effects, so we, we in the report, we have a couple of flywheels. We have the old network effects of, of banking, which is you attract deposits, which increases your ability to lend because it lowers your cost of capital, which then lending generates profits that you return to your shareholders or you you use to grow your brand and marketing presence and gain trust, which further attracts deposits, which allows you. So you've got this really nice flywheel wheel. But what they've struggled at is the the things that the the big techs and, and the, the consumer technology companies are really good at, which is creating this beautiful user experience that increases referrals, that grows the user base. And so there's a really good user network effect that sort of sits around there. And actually, I think banks have tried to do both. They've tried to have that great user experience. But what we're seeing now with Goldman and BBVA and many of the others starting to look at these partnerships, I think, is realizing, well, hang on a minute. If somebody can help me acquire customers at near zero marginal cost of acquisition, why wouldn't I take that? Why wouldn't I dramatically reduce my cost of acquisition, still attract all of those deposits to my balance sheet, get even better data about those customers so that I can lend to them? It seems like a really compelling business case. And and actually, that, I think, leads to, to part of the results. I mean, um, Kate, do you think this business case side of it is, is really something we need to explore more of? Yeah, I mean, I think the business case is, is critical, right? And we have to find like a a customer problem to solve but there has to be a credible sort of business model that, that's sitting underneath this and, and banking as a service is changing the conversation about how you can how you can structure that so yes to your point before it was all about deposits and deposits are still essential i think especially in the us we're seeing a lot of uh, fintechs or some emerging technology companies having to think really long and hard about actually do they want to actually try and go for the deposits you know you look at Yavaro know, getting their license this week um you know they've decided that actually it is worth them having the deposits versus we're seeing other, other providers sort of not go down that path just yet. So, yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think the the business model is always going to be key. Um, this is just creating more options, but also, I suppose, to Joanne's point earlier, like more complexity. So, you know, there's there are more options to consider. So actually making that decision without structure is hard. If, if only somebody had published a report that makes all of this complexity super... Yeah, sorry, listeners, you already know that. Um, but but I think that on that point, you really hit on something that, that tickled my, um, my interest funny bone there, which was um, there's a certain strategic point that a fintech challenger bank has, which is when do you get your license and when do you flip? So there's, there's a couple of almost milestones in the life of a fintech, which is when do you become a direct member of MasterCard and have your own EMI or payments license in the US? It would be it would be equivalent. I think it's money transmission business license, MTB. 
And then secondly, do you go for a charter or not? And that second question is a really, really key one because it's a trade-off. At a certain point, the cost of uh, working with some of the intermediaries and not having direct access to the underlying um, payment processes like a GPS becomes becomes prohibitively expensive if, if you're starting to hit volume, which we've which we've seen a number of organizations kind of get come unstuck with. But also, once you've got a license, as we see with Monzo now, it comes with all of these other headaches around, now I've got to manage the regulators really, really on top of me. I've got to spend 90% of my time just keeping my license. And that's the thing that people often often don't realize. So I think you've um, you've really hit on something there, Kate. Sorry, Joanne, you were about to jump in on a point there before I, uh, before I jumped in. Um, well, you, you're absolutely right on that point as well. Um, in terms of you know getting that uh, full banking license, uh, you know has you know huge uh, ramifications in terms of uh, you know on, ongoing uh, cost and uh, you know compliance needs, etc. It does it does come with a different level of consumer trust as well, and so you know that's actually where some of this banking and as a service hybrid could end up with the best of both worlds, if your banking as a service provider is underpinned by, you know, a, a fully regulated bank. Um, and I think we will see more of that model come going forward. But what I was going to come back to in terms of, uh, you know, a few years ago, we always used to talk in payments uh, circles about uh, a, a brand wanted their card to be top of wallet. And, uh, you know, that that's where the, the domestic airlines, uh, you know, won, won over with their loyalty. So they were the, the credit card of, of choice. It was it was the card that was top of wallet. In in this day and age, that conversation has moved to, you know, that the the super app and the, you know, the being the front page of your smartphone. It's the go to app that covers uh, sort of as, as many features of your, your life as possible. And I think that's one of the core parts as well of of why others are going into financial services because they're wanting that to have as many interaction points with the customer as possible they're wanting to keep the uh the funds that are accumulated through uh through loyalty um uh, or you know through disbursements you know, there's lots of different uh reasons that they're in, um uh building funds but you know they want to try and keep that inside their ecosystem as they if they can and then they want to get the uh the information about the individual and and how they go ahead and and then repurpose or, or spend those monies and you know that's where it gets really interesting in things like insurance disbursements and that kind of thing because you've suddenly got the opportunity to uh, a have visibility of spend, B control the spend through you know MCCs, merchants, or anything else in a way that is not accessed at the moment. And I think, Joanne, you've hit on something there that embedded finance is not embedded payments. We've seen a lot from embedded payments, but uh, it seems like challenger banks were you could have whatever you want so long as it had a debit card. Um, but Michael, that's starting to change a little bit. No, absolutely. Uh, certainly, you know, kind of the, the the case that was mentioned earlier around uh, either a firm or Klarna. Uh, there's lots of kind of interesting new um, payments is involving uh, more than than just uh, who's who's the provider or an issuer of my debit card. It's it's often how do I how do I have access to kind of um, on demand lending, as it were, or in some cases, you know, um, on demand insurance. Um, and I, I think there's there's kind of a lot of interesting things happening there. My, my own view is that as companies get uh, ever more adept at collecting and analyzing data, uh, that you'll you'll start to see kind of uh, the the rates that are getting charged on those those products, the, the interest rates um, or the the kind of underwriting kind of premiums that you're paying will start to more accurately affect um, reflect the underlying risk um, that that's being you know assumed, right? So I, I think there's there's kind of a lot of exciting stuff there, and data will power kind of an interesting hybridization of payments insurance and lending uh, going forward. And if you can truly be a platform for embedded finance, you can see data across a number of brands, potentially. This is why I thought the masterstroke of what um, Goldman did with Marcus and the Apple partnership is they see all of the data and they do all of the underwriting. Now, if they have five more apples out there in terms of the brands that they're distributing through, that their balance sheet through, then imagine the data set that they can build and imagine the underwriting that they can do. We already see people using Plaid to do some of this sort of stuff. And the order of magnitude improvement of, of underwriting from you know what you can do with a large data set versus what you could do historically 
it used to be like how old, how many cycles has your uh, has your credit committee been through? It's now how many transactions has your machine learning model seen? Same for fraud and all of that kind of stuff, Kate. Yeah, and no, I think it's I think the Goldman example is is super relevant, right? You look at you know, what they're doing with Apple, and they've now you know they're starting to move into this partnership with, with Amazon as well, and they've had the same stipulations there that they want to also have direct control over the, the sort of the risk profiling and, and that sort of thing. So you can see that that's really an avenue that they're heavily vested in and really really want to go for. Uh, and when we you know speak to clients and then sort of other people out in the industry like really it's everyone wants to understand what a goldman going to do next um it's mm-hmm. kind of like the thing the question that everyone has top of mind so yeah excited and i to think people should people should watch bbva more as well i think they're really interesting ones to watch and the other stud, case study for me is ping ant um and how and, and ant technology as they're known or ant financial they've really built both a platform and an ecosystem that sits around it. And the, and even WeChat with micro apps in terms of how they've got this core of data and the ability f- to use that data to, to lend in completely different ways, but have thought differently about who they partner with and who the underlying balance sheets are. They've gotten some licenses, but not all the licenses, um, so that they've managed to find that perfect gap of being um, regulated but not over-regulated, which was to exactly to Joanne's point, big techs don't want to be full-blown banks. And I think the nuance in the strategy in the Chinese model is, is really impressive to, to watch in, in combination. Um, before we uh, before we move off on, on, on this subject, I just want to um, say it's not all upside. Think, things can go wrong. I mean, we've seen things go wrong, Joanne, with, uh, in recent weeks in the UK with, with Wirecard. Uh, Michael, I mean, you'll be familiar with some of, the, some of the issues whenever there's an outage. It seems to capture more press when fintechs goes down. Joanne, Michael, I don't know if you had uh, had thoughts on you know, what are the lessons learned for fintechs over the last five years, do you think? So I don't know if, Joanne, if you want to go first, I'm happy to, happy to, to hop in here. So um, certainly to your point, Simon, um, you know, whenever there is an outage, that's that's uh, something we we take super seriously as it's, it's part of our core offering is making sure we have a stable, reliable platform. Uh, to your kind of point and what you alluded to earlier, I think there's a um, kind of inherent uh, suspicion that people have when they consider fintechs that, oh, th- these must be inherently less reliable. It, it sounds like kind of a new sort of experimental industry. Uh, the, the truth is, if, if you look um, at, at kind of the platform we've, we've put together, our CEO, uh, you know, Clay Wilkes, um, really, really an impressive figure was, was involved in, in patenting, uh, putting together some of the patents around uh, voice over IP, uh, an engineer by training um, and and has really put together a pretty bulletproof and, and robust platform. And and when we when we do have outages, because they're such rare events, it becomes a very kind of natural thing to fixate on. Uh, one because of the inherent suspicion of, of fintechs, and then and then two because it is somewhat rare. It's it's something kind of new to look at and, and reflect on. Uh, certainly, we're we're we take uh, you know take the 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 mandate of creating a uh, you know kind of very high high stability platform very seriously. And we'll continue to make pr- improvements there. But I, I think, um, you know, the, the underlying performance uh, of Galileo over time has actually been pretty robust. And I think that's been true across uh, many of the, of, of the processors domestically, whether that's kind of your more traditional players like a, like a Tesis um, or an FIS or whether it's some of the newer uh, people like, like Galileo or Marquetta. Absolutely. I mean, uh, former Tesis employee, I, I know they used to sell themselves on their uptime and their SLAs. That was the thing that you saw. And they still um, would, would have um, client outages and, and, and whatever else. And, and this is something that we've even seen the mighty Visa have an outage. And yet somehow when it's fintechs, Joanne, it seems to seems to come across differently in the press. Do you think there's there's lessons learned there? And, and, and what, about, uh, what about broader lessons from the last five years that you've picked up watching the fintech ecosystem as well? Well, I, th- I think that the press generally picks up um, on on any negatives, whether it's a, a fintech or a, a, a traditional bank. I mean, the, the difference with uh, fintechs is that it's it's only when you have a, a problem like we had with uh, with Wirecard and Wirecard Card Solutions the other weekend that you suddenly realise, you know, how many players are, are actually impacted. Um, I think in terms of uh, there was uh, a report uh, a few months ago of a sort of a, a league table of um, uptime by um, for uh, across what was considered the traditional banks, even though it included um, the likes of uh, Monzo and Starling and Co. And, you know, Starling was at the bottom in a good way in terms of number of days in which, you know, it, it had a, a problem in the last uh, 12 months was was zero. So, you know, that's where we want to play. Um, and I think, you know, there are just as many 
problems happening a, a, across um, traditional banks. I think the, the the big challenge is when there's a, a problem in one of the you know core providers within traditional banks, it becomes a uh, a multi day issue. But where you've got the likes of uh, third party processors like ourselves, like Galileo as well, we are um, you know in the rare event there there is an issue it's you know uh we we have the experts that know exactly how things work and they're you know resolved in in very very short order so i think that's actually part of the the strength of uh, of outsourcing and having that um you know real expertise you know let the let the processes run the processing um <laughs> And, Let the and- processes process here. You heard it here. I, I think <laughs> I think this is kind of drawing to a really neat conclusion around the sort of the the optics of bank as a service. And and I kind of want to as we've talked through the risks, I want to get get everybody back excited again and sort of talk about what we're looking at in the next five years. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Kate. As you look at this, what what are we looking at in five years' time, and, and what's exciting you about this space? So I suppose it's a mixture of like some scepticism and also excitement. So it's like a bit of both. So maybe I'll leave like the other guys to get like full positive at the end. I suppose my my slightly sceptical brain sees a potential risk that, you know, we, we've talked about the quote of, you know, everyone becoming a fintech, you know, from a customer point of view, that feels potentially like quite overwhelming. Like if every single place I go to wants me to have a bank account with them and wants to lend me money and wants to do a gazillion other things, like actually as a customer, like how do I keep on top of that? Like I'm always blown away whenever I speak to a customer in the US and they get their wallet out and show me how many like you know store cards they currently have like it's kind of that times 10 uh, is is where this could potentially go so what I'm excited for really is maybe like another level to the banking as a service stack which is about you know maybe a sort of integration layer or helping customers to take all these different financial channels and, and bring them back together so it's the re-aggregation point that I yeah. think is really interesting uh Every company doing fintech or embedded finance at its best should be invisible. I shouldn't need, it's not everybody's going to be a bank. It's everything. Finance just appears where I need it. And we had a, a slide in the in the report that I, I don't think we nailed it. And I think what I was trying to describe is finance that shows up just when you need it, where you need it. So I'm about to go abroad. Here's your here's your travel insurance. And here's a great FX rate. And and it's just finance where you need it. And then the, the competition marketplace for that and the ecosystems that can re-aggregate that. The best example of a good aggregation ecosystem I can point to at the moment is Shopify. From If I want to set up an, uh, an e-commerce store from birth to scaling, they've got everything I need from my initial sort of upfront capital to my website, to my stock taking, to uh, a little bit of capital to help me market the platform, uh, then potentially my debit card, then potentially my invoicing. They've really wrapped themselves around it with lots of different suppliers behind the scenes that they've picked in, in, in a modular way. So um, yeah, I think you're exactly Right, Kate. Uh, so, same question to you, Michael. As you look at the next five years, w- what's exciting you? What do you think is coming next that w- that might surprise us? Yeah. So, I think this this banking as a service, and let me kind of reframe how I how I think about banking as a service. I'd, I'd say this is a a pivot towards uh, everyone kind of specializing on the thing that they do well. Banks, you handle regulations, you handle kind of balance sheet, kind of maintenance. Uh, processors and other players in the middle of the stack, you you handle the part around making sure you have the right uh, features and functionalities available and that you're making those easily accessible via API. And then brands, you focus on, you know, kind of targeting a, a meaningful market and, uh, and, and handle all the distribution. And one of the things that I think falls out of a, of a model and paradigm like that is that the bank um, starts to recede in importance and salience in the customer's mind. Um, it becomes the much less kind of visible point or, or surface that you're interacting with in your finance and, and just fades into the kind of background of, as, as part of the underlying infrastructure that enables all the different financial functions that you want to perform. So what I, what I think will happen is that you'll see many of the tech companies and um, kind of uh, brands that have lots of positive uh, associations in consumers' minds that will become the, the layer that, that customers are most familiar with. And uh, people like Galileo, people like GPS, people like Bancor are just part of the the underlying infrastructure that that make that that kind of magic possible, if you will. Infrastructure that makes the magic happen. Joanne, any thoughts? What do you think of the next five years looks like and what are you excited by? 
So I think, yeah, there's going to be a proliferation of these banking as a service providers. Um, you know, everyone gets excited by by seeing how big the market potential is. And I think that uh, if Marketa are going to um, IPO, which is, you know, what's a uh, word on the, on the street, I think, you know, they are, are looking uh, at this very much as the understanding the size of the market opportunity. Well, that market opportunity is actually true for all of us and so I think it's going to you know further um, bring all sorts of new players to the market and I think for the brands themselves that's going to make this marketplace an incredibly complex place to be able to make decisions in because every man and his dog's going to be able to say we offer this that and the other um, actually, there's going to be, you know, very few players that necessarily can support the full journey um, because it's it's, you know, when is that banking as a service uh, just a white label? Uh, when is it a, you know, a one stop shop? But it's effectively a cul-de-sac. You know, you can't actually grow your proposition with it. Um, you know, when is it something that, you know, it's almost what you wanted, but you want to make a tweak and suddenly you can't make the tweaks at all. So I think that's going to be the, the next complex thing for us to be able to uh, clearly get the messaging out there to help uh, brand uh, decision making. And that's absolutely where I think we left the report, which is there's a number of gotchas and a number of trade-offs, which is, if you, and I think as Michael alluded to, if you get to market quickly, then you lose some of the flexibility. Um, and what flexibility do you want and why? Um, if, you're a, if you're a brand, which, are the, which provider should you be working with um, and, and why? And how do you string those together to create what experience, what, to solve what customer problem? If, if you're a provider, you've, you've kind of got... Uh, other folks to the left and right of you that you're thinking about uh, potentially partnering with, but then how do you keep it modular at the same time and be API first? And if you're a if you're a, a license holder, how do you really go and expand out your license? And how do you think about the potential of giving up that brand that has been so visible on the high street for so long? And, and is that even desirable? Uh, it's certainly uh, certainly interesting questions for all involved, but a huge huge market opportunity, as you say, Joanne. And um, that I think really leaves us uh, to wrap up today's discussion. So I I, I can't believe we flew through that already that was um I, I just love this subject so thank you so much all for for joining me within it uh where can people find out more about you and what you do uh we'll start with you joanne so yes i'm on uh, linkedin uh joanne dewer uh or at uh, globalprocessing.com uh and on the website and uh yeah look forward to hearing from anybody thank you very much how about you mike uh also on linkedin um have uh have up to date, decided not to join Twitter for, for fear of what it might do to my work productivity. But nice. uh, also Galileo-FT.com is where you can find out more about Galileo. Thank you. And Kate? Yeah, on LinkedIn as well, Kate Moody, uh, or I am dabbling with Twitter very poorly, but um, you can find me on Twitter if, if you're a Twitter person. So K8.Moody. No, your Twitter is fire. Don't 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 deny it. It's straight fire. Um, you can find me on Twitter at sytaylor or look at, uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for Simon Taylor. Thank you for listening. Do remember to subscribe. Don't forget to pass on the pod and do leave us a review. It really really helps us. Uh, speaking of making the pod better, uh, don't forget to give us your thoughts via this quick survey. Bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. Uh, join us. Find us uh, on social media. Fintech insider or 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back ASAP with a new show. See you soon.